I'd like to introduce Mr. Joseph Nye. Mr. Nye is a university distinguished service professor and former dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He has served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and a Deputy Undersecretary of State. The author of many books, he is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the British Academy, and the American Academy of Diplomacy. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joseph Nye. It's a nice uh, chance to be with you here at Rand and in Los Angeles. Anytime a Bostonian gets to enjoy this kind of weather and hears people say that it's cool, <laughs> I think you, you don't know what you've got. <laughs> Any case, it's a, it's a real pleasure for me to be here and, and talk to you tonight about power and where we're going and how the world is going to treat us and how we are treating the world. And that basically is the subject of this, of this new book that I've done on the future of power. Let me start with what's power. Power is simply the ability to affect others to get what you want. We all know that every day, and we all experience it every day. But we sometimes forget that there are three ways where you can do that, three ways to affect others to get what you want. One is with threats or coercion. We call that sticks. Another is with payments. We call that carrots. And the third is to attract and persuade people so that they want what you want. And I call that soft power. And soft power is the ability to get what you want without coercion or payment. And I'm going to come back to this, but it's extremely important that we as a people start thinking about power in all these three dimensions. Right now, we often tend to think mostly in terms of hard power and neglect soft power. Now, you can't get what you want in this world with either purely hard power or purely soft power. You have to combine the two successfully, and I call that smart power. But more of that later. Let me say, from my perspective, uh, what's happening in the world under the impact of the enormous forces of information revolution and globalization. There are really two shifts that are going on in power in the world in the 21st century. One is what I call power, uh, trans, uh, power transition, which is a shift from states, one set of states to another set of states. The other I call power diffusion, which is a shift away from all states to non-state actors, or all governments to non-governmental actors. Let me go into a little more detail on each of those. To understand power transition, uh, you have to think of a picture of the world in, let's say, 1800. If you noticed uh, what proportions there were at that time, you'd see that uh, roughly half, a little over half of the world's population was uh, in Asia, and about half of what the world made, the world's product, was in Asia. Now, if you fast forward to 1900 and take the same picture, you'd see that Asia was still more than half the world's pro uh, population, but only 20% of the world's product. And that doesn't reflect something that happened to Asia, it reflects something that happened to Europe and North America, which is the Industrial Revolution. And what we're seeing in this century uh, might be called 
the recovery of Asia. Asia is likely to return to what you might call normal proportions in this century. This starts with Japan. It moves on to South Korea. Uh, it then goes to many of the Southeast Asian countries, Singapore, Malaysia, and so forth. Now it's very much focused on China with its 10% annual growth rates. And soon it'll be focused even more on India. And over the course of the first half of this century, what you're going to see is this recovery of Asia to what you might call normal proportions, more than half the world's population and more than half the world's product. But uh, sometimes people call this simply the rise of China. Uh, but it's much more than just the rise of China. It's really the, uh, uh, the recovery of Asia as a whole. Or another way of thinking about it is after the Industrial Revolution, you could say that the center of the world economy was in the Atlantic Ocean. And in this century, the center of the world economy is likely to be in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, that meaning that the Americans participate in both ways, but the shift is really from west to east. And that's a very important shift that we're going to have to come to terms with. Now I'm going to come back to the question of power transition. But let me first say a little bit to you about power diffusion, which I defined as the shift of power away from states to non-state actors or non-governmental actors, whether it be east or west. The one way to understand power diffusion is to think of the impact of the information revolution. The information revolution isn't new. The world's had information revolutions before. Uh, for example, in the uh, uh, oh, let's say Middle Ages, you had the, uh, the printing press invented by Gutenberg, and that essentially event gave rise to the Protestant Reformation, and that had a big impact. Uh, but it took quite some time to work itself through. This current information revolution really uh, is a product of the extraordinary reduction in the costs of computing and communications. Uh, basically, what happened to the price of computing, or the cost of computing, is it dropped a thousandfold in the last quarter of the 20th century. Uh, that's an amazing number. It's so amazing that it's hard to figure out what it means. But I always like to say a way to register it or fix it in your mind is to think that if the price of an automobile had dropped as rapidly as the price of computing power, you could buy a car today for $5. That's pretty extraordinary. And what that means is that in the past, many actors were priced out of the market, so to speak. They couldn't participate because things were too expensive. And that's no longer true. For example, if, uh, if you wanted to communicate uh, from Santa Monica uh, to uh, Santiago, Chile, to uh, Johannesburg, to Beijing, to London simultaneously in 1975, you could do that, but it was very expensive. Technically possible, but very expensive. So to do it, you needed to be a government or a corporation with a big budget. Now, any of you can do that for free on Skype. 
Or to give you another example, when I was working in the uh, Carter administration in the mid-70s, we had the capacity to take a picture of any place on Earth with one meter resolution. That cost, that was a very deep secret at the time, and it cost us billions and billions of dollars to be able to do that. Now anybody can get a better picture on Google Earth for free. So this is an illustration of how the reduction of barriers because of this extraordinary information revolution is essentially making it possible for others to play in the game who previously were priced out of the game. Now this doesn't mean that governments are no longer the most important actors in world politics. Usually they have more resources in terms of force and money and legitimacy than most other actors. But it does mean that governments are on a stage which is now more crowded. Now there are many more actors that can get on that stage with them. And that leads to a very different kind of politics. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, There are now non-governmental actors which can play significant roles in world politics. Uh, You might think of Oxfam as something, as a a good actor that helps uh, reduce poverty in poor countries. Or you might think of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which actually does more uh, aid to Africa on certain diseases than the U.S. government does. Um, That's on the good end of the spectrum. On the bad end of the spectrum, there's Al-Qaeda which has been able to use uh, these networks of communication to organize things like 9-11. And it's worth remembering that uh, a non-state actor, Al-Qaeda, killed more Americans in 2011 than the government of Japan did in the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. You might consider that the privatization of war. That's a different kind of politics. Or to give you another example of a change that's been brought about by this information revolution, think of the Middle East politics of the last few months. Uh, It used to be said that in Middle East politics, there was no middle. Or another way of putting that is you either supported the autocrats, uh, like Mubarak in Egypt, or you wound up with the religious extremists like the Muslim Brotherhood because there was no middle. But this burgeoning information helped to create a new group that was in that middle. And what's more, it gave them techniques to overcome problems of coordination, such as Facebook and Twitter, which suddenly produced the politics of Tahrir Square. That's new. Now, it's not totally changed Egypt. For example, we now have a bargaining process that's going on between three major groups in Egypt. You have the army, you have the Muslim Brotherhood, which were there before, but you have this new group of empowered uh, middle, if you want, uh, that were in Tahrir Square, and they're in bargaining positions with each other. Uh, That is a different type of politics than we thought of in, let's say, Egypt 10 years ago. Or to give you another example of diffusion of power, uh, think of WikiLeaks. Stealing government documents is not new. It's as old as history. Um, Usually in the past, you'd think of a spy going into a 
uh, foreign ministry uh, sneaking out a few documents, secret documents or cables in a briefcase or something, or maybe on microfilm and coming out with them. But uh, Wikilinks is just an, an order of magnitude different in scale. Uh, here you have a private, apparently, and sitting in Baghdad um, with access to all these 250,000 State Department secret cables who allegedly passes them on to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, who then is able to provide them globally to everybody. Um, and that's, that's a difference of scale that, uh, that, that WikiLeaks represents. And finally, let me take you to the issue of uh, cyber power. Uh, I have a chapter in the book specifically on cyber power because it really is the uh, ultimate representation of how this uh, uh, information revolution is diffusing power. I don't know if any of you remember a, a cartoon that was in the New Yorker a uh, decade or so ago. It's a wonderful cartoon. It has two dogs sitting in front of a computer. And one dog looks at the other dog and says, don't worry, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> and that cartoon was wonderfully prescient because, in fact, uh, if we are attacked uh, on, by using the internet, we may not know who did it. Right now, most recently, in the last year, there was a uh, a, a worm which called Stuxnet, which was uh, transmitted to a uh, to centrifuge control programs in Iran, which slowed down the Iranian nuclear uh, program. And um, that, presumably, I think, from my point of view, is a good thing. But that can also be used against us. And if that is used against us, you could imagine somebody shutting down, let's say, the electrical grid in Chicago in uh, uh, February, and the effects of that could be as bad as bombing. I mean, frozen pipes, and, and uh, it, it could be very damaging. Or yesterday's Los Angeles Times had a front page story about uh, something happening to the, potentially to the water system. In, uh, in Los Angeles uh, through this type of technique. Now, what's interesting about this is if that were to happen, it could do enormous damage, but who did it? It could be another government. It could be a hacker. It could be a criminal group. It could be cyber terrorists, and we wouldn't know. And if they were clever enough to deploy something like Stuxnet, they would also be clever enough to disguise who did it. In other words, they would root it through other things to make it look like it came from somebody else. So if you said, well, if they did that to us and it was the equivalent of a bombing, uh, we'd send a cruise missile back. Against whom? You know, and that is an illustration of what a different world this diffusion of power is. When we think of something like uh, naval power in the military realm, it makes sense to think of, uh, of naval superiority. The Americans have naval superiority. Yes, they're non-state actors like pirates off the coast of Somalia, but they're really noise in the system. They're not a challenge to American 
naval superiority. But if you think of cyber domain, it's not clear what superiority means. If we become heavily dependent, as we are, on cyber for all our communications, our financial systems, our electricity grid, and so forth, we become extremely vulnerable. And what does superiority mean in that world? Yes, maybe we can attack others, but we're easily attacked ourselves. So these are various illustrations of how this diffusion of power by the information revolution is really changing how we're going to have to think about power in the 21st century. Now, are we thinking about it differently? Alas, not. If you ask how do Americans think about power, we're mostly imprisoned in images of the past. Um, it used to be said uh, in the 19th century that the mark of a great power was the ability to prevail in war. Um, being able to prevail in war still matters, but there may be many circumstances in which it's not merely whose army wins, it's also whose story wins. And that ability to construct a narrative which provides meaning, which attracts and persuades others, may be in many instances as important or more than whose army wins. Yet we are not doing a very good job of thinking this way. When Americans think about power, we tend to have an image of the Lone Ranger riding into town and shooting up the bad guys. Uh, that may work in some circumstances, but not in others. And unless we have a much more sophisticated way of thinking about power, we're not going to do what we need to rise to these challenges of the 21st century. It's interesting that uh, I talked to a, a friend of mine who is a congresswoman about this. And I said, how do we get Congress to have a more uh, sophisticated view of power? I mean, right now you stand up on a platform and you say more money for the defense budget and everybody claps and you get the money. If you say more money for the State Department, there's deadening silence or maybe boos and hisses. And so we have a government which is a giant and a lot of pygmies. And, the, and I'm not against defense. I was an assistant secretary of defense. I have great admiration for the defense department. But it's not the right way to run a foreign policy to have so much disproportion as we have now. And so I asked this congresswoman friend of mine, how do we do something about this? And she said, you know, you're absolutely right about the need for us to do more about soft power. Said, but I can't get up on a political platform and say that or I won't get elected. That's a problem. It's a problem for us as a country. Or let me give you another example. Hillary Clinton, uh, Secretary of State, and Bob Gates, as Secretary of Defense, have worked really well together. Both of them refer to smart power, which is the combination of hard and soft. Admiral Mike Mullen also refers to soft power and smart power. So they are they understand this, but they don't have to get elected. They're appointed officials. But what this congresswoman said to me is absolutely right. When you take something through the Congress, it looks different because they're appealing to American public, which still has rather simplified images of power. So there was a program, an aid program, in the Defense Department, which uh, about a billion dollar program, which 
Clinton and Gates agreed would be transferred from defense to state. And when it was transferred, it was cut in half. Nothing changed in the program, just who owned it. There's something wrong when we can't think more creatively or more flexibly about power than what these instances uh, represent. So that's a problem for us, which is how do you deal with this type of power diffusion that I referred to if your mind is locked into responding with hard power against targets where there's no target? The other problem we have is an, another narrative which, which, don't, which we don't do very well, is how do we deal with this issue of the recovery of Asia to go back to power transition? How do we deal with the rise in the power of China in particular? Uh, and there what we find is that the American people uh, seem entranced with narratives of decline. Americans go through periods of declinism in which we think we're down the tubes. Um, <laughs> if you think about it back after Sputnik in the late 50s, we thought the Soviets were 10 feet tall. In the 80s, we thought the Japanese were 10 feet tall. Today, we think the Chinese are 10 feet tall. Indeed, there's even a poll, uh, there are several polls, but one poll shows the majority of the American people think that China is larger economy than the US. This is crazy. It's, no, literally, factually, it doesn't have any resemblance to reality. The American economy is three times the size of the Chinese economy. But you'll get a lot of people who believe, or at least tell a pollster, they believe the Chinese economy is, is bigger. And you also get a lot of Americans who will say that this country is in decline. And uh, uh, the trouble with this term, or the narrative of decline, is it really can mislead us. For example, what does it mean to be in decline? Uh, in the 18th century, Horace Walpole, a British statesman, uh, after the British lost their American colonies, said, woe to Britain, we're now reduced to a miserable little country like Denmark or Sardinia. This, of course, was on the eve of Britain's greatest century, fueled by the Industrial Revolution that I mentioned earlier. Uh, unlike our human individuals, we don't know what the life cycle of a country is. I can assure you, and you can judge it just by looking at me, that I'm in decline. <laughs> but if you look at the country, I don't think you can tell whether the United States is in decline. Do we have problems? Yes. Have we had bigger problems in the past? Yes. Uh, are we finished? I don't know. Nobody knows. But this argument that somehow we know we're in decline is not a very good metaphor or narrative for us to understand that the problems we're going to face in coping with these changes of the 21st century. Decline is a word which mixes up two different things. One is, you might call, absolute decline, which is internal decay. And if you look at uh, ancient Rome, many people make analogies to ancient Rome, um, that Rome declined to internal decay. Rome had an agricultural economy with no productivity in its economic growth. And what happened uh, is without growth, without creativity in the economy, 
and uh, with internecine warfare, Rome succumbed not to another empire replacing it, but to uh, basically internal decay and an onslaught of barbarians from outside. That's not a very good description of what's happening in the United States today. We have problems. Uh, our budget's a problem. Our secondary education system's a problem. We have lots of problems that we're going to have to deal with. But we're also the most, um, uh, or the, according to the World Economic Forum, the fourth most competitive economy in the world. China, for instance, is 27th. Uh, we are also an economy which has enormous uh, technological creativity. For example, if you look at new areas like nanotechnology and biotechnology, the U.S. is on the forefront. Uh, and the argument that this is like ancient Rome, internal decay, is simply just not a very good metaphor. Uh, so absolute decline doesn't strike me as a good picture of the American situation. But relative decline may make some sense in the following, that if you have the U.S. here, and let's say China, Brazil, India down here, and you have the rise of the rest, they get more wealth and get stronger, they get closer to the United States, then that gap between us and them, there's a relative decline in the size of the gap. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be not number one anymore just means that the relative gap has declined. And therefore, these terms that we use about America's in decline or China's rising and taking over after us, uh, uh, these are not very good narratives for explaining where we are in the world or how the world is changing and how we should adjust to it. Now, even if China does become uh, as large as the American economy, if the Chinese economy is as large as ours in the, uh, let's say, 2020s, which is a plausible target or time, equality in size of GDP is not the same as equality in the composition of an economy. That's measured by GDP per capita. And that is a much better measure of sophistication. And on that measure, China's not likely to equal the United States until a couple of decades later, if then. And so in that sense, it's, it's, you know, this fear of China that it's all about to overtake us, I think is somewhat misplaced. Now you might say, what does it matter whether we're number one in power or not? Well, in one sense, uh, you could say it doesn't matter. It's not like the National Football League or the Super Bowl that we're the Green Bay Packers of the world politics or something. But it's very important to realize that power is not good or bad per se. It's like calories in your diet. Too little and you expire, too much you get obese. But you have to have a realistic sense of what power relations are to design sensible policies. And the great danger is if we don't understand the real power relationship between us and China, uh, we may succumb to fear and overreact. We may do things which will lead to uh, uh, very bad policy outcomes. For example, many people draw an analogy between World War I, which tore the 20th century apart, uh, and the 21st century. And it goes like this, that what caused World War I was the rise in the power of Germany and the fear it created in Britain. 
and many people say what will cause a great conflict in this century is the rise in the power of China and the fear it creates in the US. I don't believe that. I don't believe it because it's bad history. If you look back, Germany had passed Britain as the world's dominant economy by 1900. If you believe what I said a few minutes ago, and there are supporting data in the book, uh, China's not about to pass the United States in either economic or overall power uh, for at least a few decades, if then. And that means that in a sense we have time to manage the rise of China, to structure the environment so China has incentives to act responsibly and disincentives to act like a bully. But that's particularly important because if we don't get that right, if we think we're in decline and we overreact with fear, or the Chinese think we're in decline and they overreact with hubris, the net result could be quite unfortunate for this century. In fact, to summarize all this, I'd say that the way to think about power in the 21st century is to realize that it's very different in different contexts, and it's like a three-dimensional chess game. On the top board of this chess game, the board of military relations among states, the United States is the only superpower. People sometimes call this a unipolar world. Uh, we are almost half of world defense expenditure. We're the only country which can project military power on a global scale. I think it's probably going to stay that way for another couple of decades. I can't see China catching up with us militarily in, in that amount of time. Then go to the second board of this three-dimensional game, the board of economic relations between states. And then the world is multipolar. There are others that can balance our power. This is the area where Europe can act as an entity. And when it does, the European economy is bigger than the American economy. And here you also have China and Japan and others. So there are other actors that can balance us in this economic board. We go now to the bottom board of transnational relations, things that cross borders outside the control of government, which is where our diffusion of power comes in. And that can range from everything from financial transfers, which can be larger than the budgets of some countries. It could be international criminal syndicates. It can be terrorists. It could be cyber terrorists. It can be impersonal processes like climate change or pandemics. It makes no sense at all to talk about this as unipolarity or multipolarity or hegemony or the other kinds of cliches that are used. Basically, what you have on this bottom board is power is chaotically organized. And the only way in which you can deal with these non-state actors in the diffusion of power that we see in the transnational board, the bottom board, is by soft power, by attracting others, by getting cooperation, and setting up institutions and networks to deal with some of these challenges. And that means that we then have to think about power on this bottom board a little differently than we do on the first or second board. We don't want to think just about power over others, as we do on the top board. We also have to think of power with others. Remember, if we go back to where I started, that power is the ability to affect others to get what you want. Sometimes you can't get what you want unless you get others to work with you. 
And that means that if you're going to deal with some of these issues, let's take climate change, uh, and you say, how am I going to deal with the fact that China is building two new coal-fired plants, electrical plants, every week, and this is putting CO2 into the atmosphere that is going to hurt us? What could we do? Well, in terms of the first board, I suppose you'd say we'd send cruise missiles and destroy the plants. Not, not too practical. On the second board, we say, well, we'll organize an, a boycott, uh, or we'll put tariffs against Chinese goods, or we'll punish them economically. But that might actually hurt the international trading system, which we'd hurt ourselves. Or you could think of, suppose we worked with China to develop their capacity to reduce the carbon intensity of their growth. That would help China. We would help empower China on that. And in doing so, we'd help ourselves. So that's a different way of approaching a problem, power with others rather than power over others. And more and more of the problems that I mentioned that grow out of this diffusion of power are going to be of this sort where we're going to have to be able to organize cooperation, working uh, with others, not just over others. And that leads you to a different concept of what does leadership mean. Traditionally, we think of leadership as uh, hierarchical. You know, it's king of the mountain. Whoever is on top issues orders which cascade down and others obey, or they're forced to obey. It may be that in an information age, a different metaphor is more useful, which is to think not of being king of the mountain, but of being center of the circle, in which you have to attract others to work with you to set up networks and institutions to deal with some of these new challenges. And that's where your soft power comes in. So the ways in which we as a people are going to have to cope with both power diffusion, but also power transition in which we're going to compete with China, but also have to work with China, is going to require us to have a much more sophisticated notion of power. We're not there yet. Some of our officials understand this. Some of them talk about it. But when you think of the discourse that you hear when you turn on cable TV or when you read op-eds in the papers, uh, all too often we're thinking very much in 19th century terms about power and not in these more 21st century terms. So that's the reason why uh, I've written this book, to try to help people think about the challenges that we're going to face in the 21st century and what we're going to need to do to respond to them, and how limited we are in our ability to respond if we stay restricted to the concepts we have now. Or to put it another way, if you're playing a three-dimensional chess game and you focus on one board only, in the long run you lose. We've got to get ourselves more flexible in our thinking, more sophisticated in our understanding of power, if we're going to cope with these two huge power shifts of power transition and power diffusion that are being created by the information revolution and globalization in the 21st century. So those are my thoughts on it. Be interested to hear your reactions, questions, or rebuttals. Over to you. I'm absolutely delighted with your marvelous expression, chaotically organized. And I'm wondering if you would like to say a few words uh, about the relationship of that concept with uh, Mao's ideas. 
Well, <clears throat> Mao Zedong, um, I think, was uh, actually a practitioner of both hard and soft power. Um, he said that power comes out of the barrel of a gun, which is very much a hard power thought. But he also believed in propagating a myth of communism and the role of the Communist Party in China, which you could say is a narrative of soft power. And so he was very much interested in creating a, uh, a new society in China. And in the process of doing that, he often would um, interrupt his own work, so to speak. The Great Leap Forward in the 50s um, killed millions and millions of Chinese peasants and it created a chaos. Uh, the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s also uh, created uh, chaos and uh, set China back quite considerably. Um, so Mao was a, uh, was a visionary, um, but I think quite a destructive visionary. Um, he tried to use hard and soft power instruments both, but um, he used them for purposes which I think were not always well conceived and which often produced chaos and defeated his own purposes. It's interesting when Deng Xiaoping took over in 1978 after Mao had died and the immediate successors had been uh, defeated and Deng released the energies of the Chinese people economically, you've had extraordinary progress in China. China has done something quite remarkable in three decades. It has raised hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but it wasn't done by Mao, it was done by Deng. I was very interested in your elaboration of the diffusion of power. One of the things that I felt was a little bit missing from you, I would love to hear more about what you have to say, say is not just cyber power or power outside, like other countries rising, rising economic power, but the diffusion of power in cooperation, that not another country, but a corporation takes so much power that it's really uh, not some target that we can address. Well, that's a very good point. In, in the book, I do mention multinational corporations. I, I simplified a lot of things to the talk because I had to keep an eye on the clock. Uh, but the uh, corporations are uh, non-state actors and often develop quite impressive power. There are many corporations, uh, hundreds, that have budgets larger than the budgets of many countries, or larger not just to the budgets, but the gross domestic the domestic products of many countries. Uh, so, yes, corporate power is, is a very important part of this non-state power. And uh, if I had more time, I, I should have included it. How could it be addressed? How could it be addressed? Well, it can be addressed in, in a variety of ways. I mean, uh, first of all, some of what corporations do is very good, and you want to encourage that. Corporations bring technology and jobs uh, to poor areas and raise people out of poverty. That's very good. Corporations can also sometimes corrupt processes uh, legally or illegally, and that requires legal structures and laws. But all too often uh, in many countries there are not strong enough institutions to be able to do this. So you wind up with, uh, well, if for the, in the United States we have a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act which makes it illegal for an American corporation to bribe 
let's say, a poor country's government. Uh, China doesn't have that. And that means that in many cases a Chinese corporation can go in and do things that an American corporation can't. You do have non-governmental organizations or non-profits like Transparency International, which develop an international corruption index to try to name and shame those who are corrupting. So there, there are things you can do, but uh, uh, they're not all easy. You brought up a lot of interesting thoughts, things that uh, were going through my mind as I listened to you. Um, but I guess I'll, I'm going to limit it to two because I know a lot of people have questions and comments. Your particular view is very American. Mm -hmm. Okay, You are an American. I'm an American. But it's limited in that you, know, you, you just spoke about Mao. Mao did some very destructive things. But if you consider what Mao inherited and what China's situation was prior to the end of that civil war and what he brought to China and left China with was a country that was able to reform itself. And we're not talking about 4.2% of the world's population, which is the United States, but 20%. I am getting to a question. But 20% of the world's population was under Mao's command. Um, and he was bright enough to sense the hard power that was coming at China from the Soviet Union. So he sent out signals to President Nixon when he published Nixon's inaugural speech in 72. That started the dialogue which enabled that opening up that Dung followed up on with the special economic zones mm -hmm. and the rapid growth that no country, not the British during the Industrial Revolution or the Chinese. But, but I, I, what I guess my question is, or I want you to comment on, because you talked about mm -hmm. this centering right. that we need to do as a country. Am I saying something that's... No, continue. Yeah, please continue. let me finish. Continue. We're in a democracy, right? But, but what you. is the question? Yeah, no, yeah. The, the question is, is a, a reconsideration, is a reconsideration of that centering. I think China is doing a lot of that in terms of reaching out to the global south, building up and getting from the global south what it wants more than the United States. Can you comment on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, on the first point about, about Mao, I wasn't trying, I, I don't think my judgments on Mao were particularly American. I've talked with Chinese friends about this, and the many things that Mao did that they admire. When you go to Tiananmen Square today, you'll find two monuments. One is of Mao, and the other is of Confucius, who Mao hated and removed. And the Chinese have replaced Confucius in Tiananmen Square, and that essentially represents their view of what Mao did and didn't do. China. Mao did some very good things for China. I, I was simply giving, answering a question about the chaotic effects of some of his policies. But for example, uh, Mao liberated Chinese women. And uh, that was uh, tremendously important. And that stayed with China. So I, so I, and you're right about Mao as opening with Nixon and so forth. So I, I was not trying to give a full portrait of Mao. I was trying, and I didn't think what I gave was an American view. I think I gave a view which some of my Chinese friends would share. But on your point about China, um, uh, 
being more effective with the global south, um, yes, China likes to portray itself as part of the global south, part of the anti-imperialist camp, and so forth. But you know, it, there's a uh, there's a realpolitik in China's relation to the global south, uh, which is quite self-centered and more so even than the United States. Uh, for example, when there were uh, terrible human rights violations in Sudan related to Darfur and the South Sudan. Uh, American oil companies pulled out of Sudan because of the human rights violations. China walked right in immediately, not a word about human rights. And you'll find this in case after case where a company or a country will say, uh, we'd like to have a development project. The World Bank looks at it and says, this is not a good development project. It's not producing good for your people. It's just producing good for your leaders. The American then, America, the World Bank won't finance it. USAID or British DFID will not finance it. China will walk right in, build a stadium, pay a fat bribe to somebody in the government, and uh, basically corrupt the system. Uh, that is, in many ways, a way of getting closer to the global south but it's a lot different from the rhetoric which China uses. So I think you're right. Some of the things China is doing for the global south are very good. Some of them are actually quite bad. But it's ironic that in many ways the Chinese are uh, more narrow in their self-interest on development projects than the US is. The chessboard was very instructive, especially with the metaphor of centering, since whoever controls the center of the board wins the game, so I just, I love that. I wanted to thank you for that. Also, uh, the question is, so um, with soft power, would you say that the Agenda 21 of the United Nations is in that model or in the old traditional model? The idea of trying to get people to focus on development, the so-called millennium goals, uh, is a, a, a version of soft power. It's an effort to create a narrative and a story to persuade people to support this. In the year 2007, Richard Armitage, who was the former Deputy Secretary of State in the Bush administration and I, chaired, uh, co-chaired a panel in Washington on smart power run by the Center for Strategic International Studies. We said it was essential for America to put development as part of a major part of our foreign policy so that we aligned our story with the story of a majority of the people on Earth, and that that was essential for us to represent hope in that area. Uh, and it's interesting to look at the, uh, at the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton. What she did when she came into office was talk about smart power, and then she developed what she called a quadrennial diplomacy and development review to be comparable to the Defense Department's quadrennial defense review, but saying, what can we do not just for diplomacy, but also develop it? Now, there are problems with that. We can go into the details sometime. But the general attitude, which is to align ourselves with these goals of development, I think is right. Given that you feel like uh, in the 21st century, China and the United States will be you know, leading the globe in terms of power, do you feel one country has an advantage or disadvantage in terms of their um, political structure. Most, uh, for example, like, you know, democracy, United States, which we've seen has its limitations, especially in a recent financial thing, as opposed to like a, an authoritarian government like China, which, 
you know, after many years of failure, seems to be making the right steps and possibly can respond quicker to any um, global crisis? And also how it relates to your, you know, in your structure of soft and hard power. China has done some wonderful things, as I expressed, about raising people out of poverty. But, but it's a great mistake for us to assume that because China's authoritarian, it doesn't have problems. Give me a couple of examples. Um, China can beat, build high-speed rail. If you don't have property rights and lawyers, it's pretty easy to build high-speed rail. <laughs> but when China tries to revalue its currency so that it becomes less dependent on exports and can move development to consumer demand at home and to the western part of the country to reduce the terrible inequalities in China, which they themselves worry about, and their own 12 five-year plan calls for this, it turns out they can't do it. One of the reasons they can't do it, according to Chinese friends of mine, is that the coastal industries have so much power and are so much in bed with local party bosses that they cannot get these decisions which the Chinese central bank says they should take. So which is more important, building high-speed rail or being able to implement the adjustment of your overall development strategy? In some ways, China has, without democracy, some of the problems that we have in our democracy. So I think there's a great mistake in, in uh, sort of glorifying Chinese autocratic government. There's also a point that the autocratic government uh, tends to undercut China's soft power. China, does, China, Hu Jintao told the 17th Party Congress in 2007 that China should invest more in its soft power. And they spend billions of dollars, uh, literally, on increasing their soft power. They have Confucius Institutes around the world uh, to, to uh, 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 basically teach traditional Chinese culture, which is a very attractive culture. They have, uh, 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 they've tried to transform Xinhua, their news agency, into a sort of a Chinese Al Jazeera. They're, they're spending a lot on this. They have something like the Shanghai Expo, which attracted 70 million visitors. But after they've invested in all this, the next thing you know, they go and they lock up Liu Xiaobo and won't let him go to the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony and shoot themselves in the foot in terms of soft power that they've invested in. So authoritarianism is not, I mean, democracy has its problems, but let's not make the mistake of thinking authoritarianism doesn't have problems too. I wanted to thank you for coining the term soft power. And I read your book in 2001. And uh, it was very exciting. I think just recently Hillary Clinton and I think President Obama also used the term soft power. And that's just an observation. I thought that was kind of interesting. It must be exciting to come up with a concept and see the leaders of the free world use it. <laughs> and the leader of the unfree world. <laughs> But my question is about the Iraq war and about China and the U.S. and what's happened to the two countries over the past decade. According to the Congress, the Iraq war has cost us about a trillion dollars. Yeah. According to Joe Stiglitz, it's cost about three trillion dollars. Right. So the truth is probably somewhere between those two figures. While we were busy waging war with Iraq and Afghanistan, um, China was forming alliances with many countries in Africa and Latin America to get natural resources that it needs for its 10% growth a year. And I was wondering if you could comment on 
the difference of China and the U.S. over the past decade, economically and militaristically, because of the choices the United States or the Bush administration in particular made vis-a-vis -vis Iraq and Afghanistan versus where China is. And the invasion of Iraq was a uh, huge strategic blunder. Um, it did uh, waste our treasure and manpower on uh, uh, a goal which was really not attainable and uh, it diverted our attention from things which would have been far better. Uh, I tend to look at this uh, through uh, the advice of Dwight Eisenhower, who I cite in the last chapter of my book, in which Eisenhower, who looks better and better to me as I study American <laughs> history, um, said, don't get involved in land wars in Asia. Uh, he said this after the Viet uh, Cong took uh, uh, the Dien Bien Phu, and uh, he basically refused to have the Americans go in and bail it out. And I think his advice was smart. We haven't followed that. Uh, Kennedy and Johnson didn't follow it in Vietnam, and uh, we haven't followed it in the last decade very well. Uh, that's uh, the question I think now is how do you get from uh, here to there, in other words, given where we are in, in Afghanistan, how do you move to something that looks like Eisenhower's advice? Um, but I'm not arguing an isolationist position. What I'm saying is American military power can be tremendously important where it's welcome. And it's welcome in places like Japan and South Korea and it, other places um, because they want us. In fact, Japan wants us there enough that they actually pay for most of the cost of our troops there. And South Korea also makes a significant payment toward the cost of American troops in South Korea. So it, we don't necessarily want to cut all military expenditure, and we don't want to withdraw to the shores of the United States. But going inside other countries and trying to reorganize them or rule them is, I think, a, a poor choice. And it was interesting that uh, Secretary of Defense Gates gave a speech in West Point on this, uh, what was it, a month or so ago, in which he quoted uh, Douglas MacArthur and said, anybody who recommends something like this should have his head examined. Uh, it strikes me that, that uh, though he was criticized quite heavily for the way he handled it, uh, President Obama's approach to the Libyan uh, intervention was an example of trying to evolve uh, to a more multilateral, less um, we're the only guys that matter in the room kind of approach and that ultimately, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but that ultimately that's probably, uh, that, that that sort of undergirds most of his approaches in a marked contrast to the Bush administration. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are about that particular diplomatic effort and the hard power that was attached to it. Well, I actually supported Obama on, the, on his actions in Libya, and I thought it was a good illustration of that type of leadership that I was talking about. Um, there were many people who said, why doesn't he stand up and lead? Why is he dithering? Why is he waiting? Why doesn't he just go in there? And Obama, I think, had the good sense to think of what I said as not king of the mountain, but center of the circle. He waited until he had a resolution from the Arab League and the UN, which provided the soft power of legitimacy. He then let the French 
have the first sortie. The French and British take the lead. He's now handed over operations to NATO, a multilateral organization, and he has set quite clear limits to American participation. It, we hope that this will lead to the fall of Gaddafi. If it doesn't, and you wind up with a split and a civil war in Libya, I think he made fairly clear last night, that's for Libyans to sort out. We're not going to get in on the ground and, and sort that out. That, to me, is, is the right kind of leadership. Uh, hello, Professor Nye. My name is David. Um, and I, I wanted to ask about, you, you said one of the, the goals that, that a country needs to do is not only win the battle, but also win the story. And, and, and you also mentioned the congressperson who, who, who proposing some of these things is, is political poison. Um, and watching Obama, it seems that nuance is political poison. It may be, if things turn out fine in Lib with Libya, that's one thing, but so, so I guess my question is, um, how do you create that story in this country so, so that, so that uh, um, it's much harder to criticize a president who doesn't just go short for the king of the mountain, which is much more appealing psychologically mm -hmm. to every American, and that's a, psycho that's a thing that, that isn't gonna change because that's, everyone wants to go after the bully if they perceive them as a bully. That's just a human thing. It's much more satisfying emotionally for Americans, but for most people, to say, there's a bad guy, let's beat him. I mean, oh, that's it. But then you have to say, but what are the costs? And what are the costs not just of my hard power, like will I spend a trillion dollars, or perhaps as Stiglitz says, three trillion when you add it all up. Um, and uh, am I, is, are the costs disproportionate to what I'm trying to accomplish? And then also, how does it relate to my soft power? Am I creating a story? For example, if Obama had gone into Libya uh, unilaterally, without the steps that I mentioned earlier, the story that would have filled the Middle East would have been, United States invades yet another Muslim country. That would have been very, very expensive to us in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, and so forth. So having a president who is able to make these distinctions and then try to explain them to the American people as he did last night is far better than a president who is decisive but decisively wrong. 